And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Colossians 3.21, parallel passage. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And thus far the reading of God's Word and all God's people said. Today is Father's Day. That is, today is a day in which the Word of God will address fathers in particular. It will do so both negatively and positively. Actually, we'll spend expand this to two Sundays, so there will be an extra Father's Day next week. While it is fathers who are addressed here, most commentators acknowledge that it is it is fair to see these instructions as belonging to and being written to both parents while placing the primary responsibility of fathers, uh, the primary responsibility on the fathers who are the heads. In fact, um, I know this runs contrary to our, our culture, but then again, most everything in the Bible does. Um, I am not aware of any commands in the Bible for mothers. There are commands for wives and husbands. But the commands are to fathers, and the reason is fathers carry the responsibility. If you're the husband, if you're the, the head, then that doesn't mean you're, the, you're some kind of privileged king that everybody waits on you. That means you bear the responsibility to do with that family what God intends to be done with that family, which is to give him godly offspring. That's your responsibility. Now, wives come alongside. They've been given as helpers, companions, absolutely essential. But the burden of the responsibility is upon fathers, and by implication then, mothers, these same things will apply uh, in, a, in a slightly different way, but principally the same. So the Jewish and the Greek society was patriarchal, and so Paul addresses mothers through the fathers. God doesn't make the husband the leader in relationship to his wife and then make the wife the leader in relationship to the children. Husbands bear the responsibility in both directions. Now, I won't be addressing just some fathers, but all fathers, since all fathers have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if you're a father or a future father, then this sermon is for you, which means that your ears, that your heart should be especially focused and sensitive to what the Word of God has to say to you in particular. Receiving the Word with all eagerness of heart. All of us should have this. We should have an upfront commitment before we even hear or hear the exposition of this we should have an upfront up commitment to repent and to amend and to grow in Christ in this area. John Piper said, Children ought to see in their human father a reflection, albeit imperfect, of the Heavenly Father in His strength and tenderness, in His wrath and mercy, in His exaltation and condescension, in his surpassing wisdom and patient guidance, the task of every human father is to be for his children an image of the Heavenly Father 
in heaven. I join with all the fathers present and confess that I haven't been perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect, but rather than allowing that to be some kind of an excuse. How often do we hear, well, I'm not perfect. It's not an excuse. Rather, I trust that we will all make it our goal. You shall be perfect, mature, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This world suffers greatly because of failed fathers. Weak and abdicating fathers, overbearing and harsh fathers, hypocritical and inconsistent fathers, and all of these provoke their children to wrath. In the Gospel, God calls fathers to have their hearts turned toward their children. When fathers' hearts are so inclined, then children's hearts will respond accordingly. Remember, we love Him because He first loved us. The world is full of pastors, excuse me, of fathers, including pastors and kings and governors and judges and teachers and all those in positions of authority and leadership. So there is a broad application of these texts as well. It's not surprising that there is such disrespect for authority all around because affection and respect go hand in hand. And when the hearts of children are turned toward their fathers, then we would expect to see their hearts turned toward these other authorities as well. Now, I'm going to front load this sermon today with several quotes. John Costner writes in his book titled The Atheist Syndrome in which he analyzes the lives and backgrounds of several prominent atheists. And he says this, The men and women who founded scientific atheism all shared certain common experiences. Under careful examination, a definable psychological and spiritual pattern emerges. Father hatred and a confusion of the Father with God, the Heavenly Father, as part of the atheist syndrome. He goes on to describe Darwin and Huxley and Freud and Nietzsche's relationship with their fathers as the primary foundation of their hatred of God. The world is hungry for godly fathers. The obligations of Ephesians 6.4, fathers provoke not your children to wrath, but rather raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that passage... It, has obligations that are just as great as the first verse of chapter 6, which is, children, obey your parents. How often parents might cite that to their children. The Bible says, obey your parents. But the Bible also says, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. And those are equal commandments, as it were, applied to different people in different places. So fathers, it's you need to remember first that it's their hearts that we're after and not a mere outward conformity of obedience. Proverbs 23:26. My son, give me your heart. Let your eyes observe my ways. We want them to love the standard. But loving the standard won't come by way of a loud voice demanding that they love the standard. God made us fathers, and therefore, men, 
we are fathers before God first. N.T. Wright observes that when ancient philosophers drew up codes of behavior as they did from time to time, the weight was always the other way around. Slaves and children were to be obedient, and that was the end of it. Now Paul insists on mutual responsibility. Parents must behave appropriately toward their children, which means not being harsh and provoking children so that they become bitter and want to rebel or run away. Masters must remember that they too have a master, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has already instructed children, as we've seen, to obey and honor their parents, and so it's clear that parents are called, in fact, to discipline their children, to teach them, to train them, to correct them, and to enforce God's standard in the home. Children bear the responsibility to obey their parents, but God commands parents to raise their children with godly nurture, being careful not to frustrate that, not to frustrate them. Untold damage is done by parents who provoke their children and, be- and cause them to become discouraged. Matthew Henry explains that parents provoke their children by treating them with rigor and severity, by holding the reins too tightly, and thereby raising their passions, discouraging them in their duty. Failing to patiently and constructively train children in things of God, we often substitute more fleshly methods of of parenting which end up provoking children to anger. So the question is, if we're called to discipline, how are we called to do this? There is always more than the what. There is always the essential how. Sometimes people say, well, I did this, this, and this. Yeah, but the question is, how did you do this, this, and this? You can speak the truth, but the Bible says you have to speak the truth in love. That's not the same thing, necessarily. If we fail to do it the way God says to do it, then our discipline will actually do more harm than good. As I mentioned, there are far too many passive and abdicating fathers, but there are also those who react to this by going the other direction. (coughs) We think we're going to compensate for one error by committing an error in the opposite direction. John Piper said, first Paul warns against provoking anger because anger is the most common emotion of the sinful heart when it confronts authority. Dad embodies authority. Apart from Christ, the child embodies self-will. And when the two meet, anger flares. A two-year-old throws a tantrum and a teenager slams the door or worse. So, he says, I think Paul is saying there's going to be plenty of anger with the best of parenting, so make every effort without compromising your authority or truth or holiness to avoid provoking anger Consciously be there for the child with authority and truth and holiness in ways that try to maximize, or excuse me, try to minimize the response of anger. And so the scriptures give us the proper balance. A couple of more quotes here. Tim Challey says that the word provoke is the kind of word you might use when you kindle a fire into a flame. 
You begin with something small and provoke it into a roaring fire. Paul is using it in the negative sense of stirring, exasperating, or irritating them toward anger or bitterness. Parents must not provoke their children to anger. I want to make an important application. Parents can cause their children to become angry and bitter. I'm sure you know this, and I can assure you that they know this, but I think we can go even a step further to say there are times when our children are justified in their anger toward us. There are times when we so provoke our children and we so exasperate them that anger is the fitting response. It may even be the right response if that anger is expressed in righteous ways. There may be times when your children's anger toward you is more righteous than your actions or attitudes toward them. And continuing with his quote, next we read, lest they become discouraged. A discouraged child is one who has lost heart. He is so beaten down that he's lost hope. He has lost motivation. He doesn't care anymore. One Bible translates it, lest he get discouraged and quit trying. The idea here is that you can so beat down your children that they stop trying to please you. Maybe your demands are arbitrary or unfair. Maybe you never praise your children and take joy in them. Maybe you live hypocritically before them with higher expectations of them than for yourself. Whatever the case, they eventually stop caring and stop trying. And one more. Commentator Brian Chappell wrote, What then would cause exasperation in terms of parenting inconsistent with these values? One cause would be authority that requires submission but submits to no one. And then a mother, as when a mother tells a child to quit whining by whining at him, or when a father compels self-control by throwing a temper tantrum. Another cause would be love that needs sacrifice but seeks self, as when a mother pushes for a child's success to affirm her own worth, or when a father punishes to enforce behavior that secures his own reputation or comfort. We also exasperate our children when we demand respect at the expense of an individual's dignity, or when a, as when a mother shames a child into obedience, or when a father exerts control by comparing the child with others inside or outside the family. Whether it takes the form of manipulative guilt trips, shaming silent treatments, or abusive denials of worth, the home that rules by guilt undermines biblical obedience. The essence of parental love is recognizing that we are dispensers of God's grace into the lives of our children. They learn to identify and reverence God's character through the way we treat them in moments of profound pride and in times of intense disappointments. So back to our question. How am I to exercise the discipline of my children? Martin Lloyd-Jones offered six, and I've added a seventh principle to help guide us and how to be godly fathers, godly parents toward our children. And perhaps there are others that could be added as well. These will be brief and to the point.
First, the first foundational principle is this. In order to provide the kind of discipline that God requires, we must be able to first exercise self-control and discipline ourselves. If you've lost your temper, then you are out of control and you will provoke your child to do the same. How can you demand that your child be disciplined when you aren't? Modeling good behavior and a right attitude is critical to right training. You may have to talk to yourself. You may have to take yourself into the bedroom by yourself and talk to yourself and say, okay, I'm really mad, I'm really upset, but right now I've got to be a grown-up. I've got to represent God the Father. I have to show grace and mercy while dealing with this very serious problem, while confronting it head-on. I have obligations here. Or as Jesus said, Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Your parenting is to be spirit-filled parenting, which means that you are to be under the control and the influence of the Holy Spirit, and one of the key fruits or evidences of someone who's filled with the Holy Spirit is self-control. Charles Spurgeon said, train up a child in the way he should go, but be sure you go that way yourself. If you want your children to be honest, you want your children to be morally pure or self-controlled, then of course you are going to have to be that first. And by the way, you know this, children not only hear you, they see you, they know what's going on. And so, that's the first principle. Second, this is one we don't think about in terms of provoking children, but your discipline can't be absent. Passive or abdicating fathers also exasperate their children. We tend to think of provocation as being aggressive, and it often is, but When someone, especially someone who is supposed to be in charge, doesn't do their job, then everyone suffers. I've often pointed to a child in public and told my children when they were little, based upon their behavior or their appearance, her daddy doesn't love her. It's obvious. We read about this in 1 Kings 1, 5-6. Then Adoniah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, and his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, Why have you done so? When you indulge your children, you are provoking them in the long run to hate you and to disrespect you. Exasperation comes in many forms. Number three, the third principle is that your discipline must not be arbitrary or capricious. There are few things more frustrating and exasperating than being on the receiving end of a discipline that is uncertain, random, or based on a parent's whim or mood. Five times the behavior evoked no response 
The sixth time, there was an over-the-top explosion. Next week, the same behavior receives a mild rebuke. Recall what the Heavenly Father said to His sinning children in Malachi 3.6, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Fathers need to say what they mean and mean what they say and do what they say they're going to do. If you make a promise, keep it. Because a broken promise provokes. If you have a decision to make, make it. Because indecision provokes. Consistency is essentially having the same clear expectation for a certain behavior at all times across all situations Discipline that seems arbitrary to a child is because rules and expectations are not clearly defined and, this, and these should be established and advanced and reinforced regularly. Create a few clear rules and, then cons- and, and the consequences for breaking them. The rules should stay the same no matter who, what, when, where, or why. Fourth. Fathers must be just judges and willing to hear the child's case. It's provocative for anyone to perceive that they're on the receiving end of an unreasonable system. Fathers, you're bigger, in most cases, stronger, and sometimes you're even smarter than your child. But that is no excuse for using your superior power or position to dispense justice without the facts and without weighing legitimate circumstances. It's tempting. The child starts to speak or explain and then he's cut off with, I don't want to hear it. But perhaps you're wrong about what you think happened or about what your child did. And perhaps there are mitigating circumstances, but you won't allow any kind of an explanation. You already know. Now, just a footnote here. Of course, a child can try to take advantage of this. That's a separate issue. It is never as simple as the child saying, by the way, kids don't say this, you're making me angry and the Bible tells you not to provoke me to wrath. Let me tell you, Jesus made plenty of people angry. Since all children are sinners, therefore even the best and the most loving and tender use of authority will provoke some children sometimes to anger. But fathers, you must never be the illegitimate cause of that anger. John Piper observes, think of this. God has never done anything that should legitimately cause anger in any of his children. We are never warranted in getting angry at God, ever. It happens. And we should admit it and tremble and repent and turn back to humble trust in His sovereign goodness. But even though God has never done anything that legitimately provokes our anger at Him, what has He done about the breakdown in our relationship with Him? He has taken the initiative to heal it. Initiatives that were infinitely costly to him. 
So it's the unnecessary and sinful provocation that is forbidden. Fathers, you are never to be unreasonable. If your child's reason turns out not to be legitimate or true, then you may deal with that offense as well. But it is possible, and it's certainly not possible, it's true, that you're not omniscient and that there might be pertinent information that needs to be on the table. If you harshly shut your child down, then don't be surprised when they are provoked or exasperated to the point of rebellion and hostility. You shut them down, and they will eventually... Shut you down. Fifth, selfishness is another major principle that leads to the provocation of children. I wrote out this statement. Men are sometimes the most selfish people on the earth. And then I went back and amended it parenthetically. Women are the other most selfish people on the earth. We're all selfish. That's the problem with a child, right? They're selfish. But we're selfish. And you must remember that your child is a person, a human being, going to be somebody's mother or father or friend, an aunt, an uncle. They're, going to, they're, they're being raised to, to be what you are. Your child is a person like you, and they are not simply your personal possession for your personal pleasure Rather, they've been given to you by God for His glory. A selfish, domineering parent is ugly. This is the kind of parent who demands everything and expects everything from the child. This is one of the fastest ways to breed resentment in your child. When such a parent crushes their child's personality, that will have long-term effects on that child. Your children are not there primarily to serve you. They've been given to you for you to train them on how to serve God and their neighbors. Six. A sixth principle is that discipline must never be too severe. Matthew Henry urges parents to exercise authority not with rigor and severity, but with kindness and gentleness. And that is not a contradiction. If your children can forget that you love them, either during or immediately following discipline, then you're probably doing it wrong. Harshness and cruelty to a child is an offense against God. Disproportionate punishment is an act of violence. This is not justice. It's vengeance. You're not paying somebody back. Well, they made me mad. They hurt me. They irritated me. And so I'm about to irritate them. I'm going to get even. That's not what this is about. Harshness can be verbal. It can be physical. And if it's harsh, then by definition, it is not just. It's harsh. Harshness is an abuse of power, and it will either crush the child or provoke resentment or both. We must never humiliate another person. If we do, if we do so to a child, then it is clear that we ourselves need to be disciplined. 
A seventh and last principle here is that we must not fail to recognize their growth and development. Everybody, all your life, we're always going through some new phase. The terrible twos. The tyrannical threes. I don't know what the fours are, but every year, every part of our life, throughout our whole lives, involves changes and transitions and, cha- and growth. And transitions are hard on everyone, and that means you're going to need to know how to show grace to your little ones, to your teenagers, to the young adults. They will likely make some bad, sinful, and embarrassing choices. They will provoke you, but you may not provoke them. Let me say that again. They will provoke you, and they shouldn't, but that's not an excuse for you to provoke them. You're required to not provoke no matter what they do. Encourage them and praise them where you can. Allow them some room to grow. Learn to have adult conversations with them. You want them to show you respect, then you show them respect. Now, as we wrap this up, you will recall the closing words of the Old Testament, as well as some of the opening words in the New Testament, the book of Malachi, last book. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming and great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. This is a reference to John the Baptist. It's quoted again in the opening chapter of Luke as Gabriel speaks to Zacharias and tells him this is who that prophecy was about. And so, fathers, the first obligation of the gospel is with us toward our children turning our hearts toward our children. They need the gospel. That's our first mission field. It's our primary mission field. Our hearts and their hearts. Dr. Lloyd-Jones writes this, Our children are watching our lives. They see the discipline and the control we exercise over ourselves. And they will see that what we do to them is not something capricious. That we are not merely giving vent to our own feelings and getting relief. They will always know that we love them. And that we are concerned about their well-being and their benefit in this sinful, evil world. And so there will be this underlying respect and admiration and liking and love. What if God dealt with us as we often deal with our children? On the long suffering of, oh, the long suffering of God. Oh, the patience of God. Oh, the amazing way in which He bears with all our evil manners as He did with those of the children of Israel of old. Now, I know this isn't easy. I know because. I'm a father. And moms, I know it's not easy for you. It's not easy, but it is necessary. And by the grace of God, with His help, with the Word of God, with the Spirit, with prayer, with encouragement, 
All the things he's given us. Remember, he's given us everything that we need. It can be done. And so I want to close by just asking you, as you've heard these things today, and this is obviously not exhaustive, but hopefully it has encouraged you to examine yourself before God. Are there things that you need to change? Are there things you need to amend? Are there things you need to repent of and ask forgiveness for? So that you can be what God's called you to be as a father or a mother, as a parent. We want to see the world transformed and the best way to show the world what that looks like is at your house. With your family. With your kids. Believe me, the world will notice when this is done right. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your grace and long-suffering, for your mercy, which is new each morning. While we were sinners, you sent your only begotten Son to die for us and to reconcile us to yourself. Your discipline of us is always a demonstration of your love for us as you work in us to do your will and to do what is pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Apostle Paul, as a minister of the gospel, as a pastor, dealt with his people as a father should deal with his children. With an open and honest heart, he spoke to them, and he called on them to do likewise. So in 2 Corinthians 6, 11-13, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections, Now in return for the same, I speak to you as children, you also be open. Fathers, we have all fallen short of our Heavenly Father, but He continues to love us and to work in us. Consider how He deals with our frailties and our failures. John Piper writes, and being a Christian means receiving forgiveness freely from God for all our failures and all of our anger. It means letting the smile of God in Christ melt the decades of hardened, numbing, emotionless, low-grade anger, and then letting that healing flow to others. Let all anger be put away from you. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. God forgave you. God has been kind to you. God is tender-hearted to you, and it's all because of Christ. Therefore, in Christ, by the Spirit, fathers, we can do this. We can put away anger, and we can forgive, and we can experience and awaken in our children tender-heartedness with a whole array of precious emotions that may have been eaten up by anger. They can live again in you and in your children. And now, after becoming that kind of forgiving, supporting, tender, sacrificial father to us fathers, he calls us to be imitators of God as beloved children. Experience the fullness of God's tender and tough emotions. He has overcome his wrath. He has forgiven our sin. And in him, if you will have it, there is healing for decades of soul-destroying anger. What our children need from us 
is that we experience the fullness of God's offer of healing. Here is the dynamic of fatherhood. As God has forgiven you, forgive your wife and forgive your children, sever the root of the whole cycle of anger by savoring to the depths of your soul the preciousness of God's forgiveness. Don't provoke your children to anger. Show them in your own soul how it can be replaced with tender-hearted joy. So we come to the table to refocus, to remember, to renew our commitment to be followers of Jesus in our particular callings. O Lord, our God, we acknowledge that you alone are the initiator and worker of our salvation. We cannot save ourselves, nor can we assist you in saving us. We are the blessed objects of your mercy and grace. Clearly, Christ demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. While we were enemies, you reconciled us to yourself through your Son. The Lord is our rock and our fortress and our deliverer, our God and our strength in whom we will trust, our shield and the horn of our salvation. You are our stronghold. We will call upon you who is worthy to be praised. We will rejoice in your salvation and in your name we will set up our banners. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Father, in gratitude for your work of salvation, we commit ourselves to serve you with gladness in this new week, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with you, proclaiming the good news of your salvation from day to day, declaring your glory among the nations and your wonders among all peoples. For you, O Lord, are great and greatly to be praised. You are to be feared above all gods. Help us now to walk in the good works that you have prepared for us in Christ. Bless now our extended communion and our meal. Give us your rest and joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen.